The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. I'd like to ask that you turn in your Bibles to Revelation 13. You just heard Chase read this text. So we're looking this morning at Revelation 13, 1 through 10. In Romans 13, the Apostle Paul depicts government as a blessing from God. That the government officials are God's servants to do you good. And we're commanded in Romans 13 that we should submit ourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority that he has established. For there is no authority that exists except what has been established by God. And so Christians are commanded throughout every generation to submit themselves to God-ordained authorities. Romans 13. But in Revelation 13, we have the end of the story. We're told in Revelation 13 where human government is going, what the final form of human government on earth will be. And it's a devastating and terrifying story. We have depicted for us in this chapter the beast coming up, emerging out of the sea, embodying, I believe, one final world ruler who will use his absolute power to establish himself as God on the earth and demand worship from every human being on the face of the earth. That's where we're heading. Now, history has shown how dangerous government by sinful humans really is. We don't have to look far from the pages of of the Bible itself, the story of the book of Exodus, how Pharaoh used his governmental power to oppress the Jews, and they were enslaved and forced to build their monuments, their pyramids, and all the things that they forced them to do. Or we have to see the account of the book uh, in the book of Nahum of the Assyrian Empire, this terrifying empire. The Assyrians were the Nazis of the ancient world, and how they trampled people with their iron chariots, and they invented crucifixion as a torture, a slow way to kill their adversaries that eventually came to fulfillment in Christ. The Greek Empire under Alexander the Great spread Greek culture, Greek philosophy, Greek views of democracy and other things, but they didn't live them out. After, after Alexander the Great died, his generals rose up and acted as tyrants in his wake. And then there was the Roman Empire, which did spread uh, economic unity, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace but enforced by the iron will of their legions. And after the Roman era, the barbarian horde swept across Europe and destroyed human culture. I'm thinking about the Huns and the, and the Mongols and the Vikings, leaving behind no great literary achievements or any advancements in human understanding, just the power of might, of conquest. And then Christendom had the divine right of kings and the feudal system. And basically the government was only going to be as good as the the king. If the king was righteous, then the government would be good. And if the king was wicked, then the government would be bad. And for the most part, they were wicked. In England, you have the legendary King Arthur and the golden era of Camelot, representing the aspirations that all of us have for a righteous government, a righteous king. But it was all a myth. The American Revolution sought to break away from the divine right of kings and establish a government of the people, by the people, for the people. And in the words of Winston Churchill, speaking on the floor of the House of Commons in 1947, democracy 
is the worst form of human government, except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. That's typical of his wit, but he's saying there really is no perfect government that has ever been seen. The 20th century saw an experiment of government-mandated generosity by the upper and middle classes to the lower classes called communism, but it's been an economic failure, a moral failure, a religious failure in every respect. Human government should serve the people in the pattern of Christ, the servant king. But human rulers usually use their powers, their positions of power to steal and kill and destroy, to be honored and to live lives of self-indulgence and luxury in this world. When I was in Cameroon this summer, the whole capital city of Yaoundé was shut down for half a day by the security forces because the president of Cameroon might use one of those roads in the afternoon. So we weren't allowed to even to be pedestrians on the street. The, the officials were everywhere. The police were everywhere. And in the end, the man traveled by helicopter anyway. And the Wycliffe missionaries that I was with said, this kind of thing happens all the time. If you look at the hotspots around the world, you'll see what a big deal this issue of corrupted and sinful human government really is. It's all over the pages. You maybe don't even realize, as you, unless you really look around and start stringing things together how much of, a, of an issue this is. Of course we know some of the more famous issues like King Kim Jong-un in uh, North Korea who's tyrannizing his own people and has done for years but threatening other nations with nuclear holocaust. We see demonstrations in Kenya as the local population is enraged over a questionable outcome of a presidential election. We see ongoing civil war in Syria with ISIS, it seems like it's coming to an end, at least that phase of it, but unrest. Major movement in Catalonia seeking independence from Spain. A military clampdown because a coup is threatened in Venezuela. In China, the government, the communist government there is the most virulently anti-Christian that we've seen in decades, really since the time of Mao. More and more crackdown from the uh, communist officials on our brothers and sisters in Christ as they seek to assemble in peaceful worship. But all of this is nothing compared to what this chapter tells us is coming. As we come to Revelation 13, we will begin to probe the depths of the corruption of the human soul. The corruption that human government will reach at the very end of human history. And the most powerful and most corrupt of all human rulers who will be overthrown only by the second coming of the true King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ himself. So today, today we're going to meet the beast from the sea, whom most Bible scholars uh, identify as the Antichrist. So context, by this time in the book of Revelation, we're moving through these chapters, we've gone through 12 chapters in the book of Revelation, we're coming to Revelation 13. And if we take a general sequential view that this leads to this, which leads to this, which I think is a helpful approach to the book of Revelation, not everyone shares that, we would say then the seven trumpet judgments have already happened by the time this Antichrist emerges. And you read about that in Revelation 8 and 9, how these trumpets sound from heaven and destroy the ecology of the earth. Green things, one-third of all the green things on earth are burned up. One-third of the oceans turn to blood and one-third of the sea creatures dying. A third of the drinkable water, the drinking water, fresh water, turned to blood, poison. 
And then uh, the, the celestial bodies struck so that a third of their luminosity is reduced. A demonic horde emerging from the, the nether reaches of the earth, tormenting human beings for five months. And then a demonically uh, incited army of 200 million killing a third of the population of the earth, perhaps two and a half to three billion people. It's just staggering levels of suffering on planet earth. And at that time, many people around the world, I think, will be yearning for some leader to emerge and make sense of all that and bring them together so there can be some kind of semblance of order and of an economy and drinking water and other things and a life that can be lived in such circumstances. And they will be ripe at that point to follow Satan's dark masterpiece, the greatest delusion that he will have ever foisted on the human race, the Antichrist. Now, for centuries, we believe Scripture... Throughout all of history, Satan has been the secret power behind the throne of every rebellious ruler on earth. Every wicked ruler in history, he's been the puppet master behind the throne. 1 John 5.19 says the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Satan revealed this truth to Jesus on the Mount of Temptation when he showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said, all this has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you'll bow down and worship me, all of this will be yours. And Jesus, of course, refused, saying, the scripture says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Satan has organized his dark kingdom, which has other very powerful demonic beings under him. Rulers and authorities and powers of this present darkness who are also puppet masters behind lesser thrones on planet Earth. And these demonic rulers have effectively but secretly swayed and influenced the decisions of the movers and shakers of human history in every era. But at the end of the world, he will consolidate all of this, all of the governments of the world, one massive empire led by one corrupted man, the beast, the Antichrist. Now, as we look at Revelation 13, we can see here a grotesque parody of the Trinity. The word Antichrist does not appear in the book of Revelation, does not appear in this chapter. It actually only appears in 1st and 2nd John. But the word Antichrist from the Greek means substitute Christ, not what we would think against Christ, although he is that, but it means in the place of Christ, a substitute Christ. So... 1 John 2.18, we are told, you have heard that Antichrist is coming. And 2 Thessalonians 2 says, the end can't come until the man of lawlessness appears. So there is this one ruler that is coming. Satan, called the dragon, and the beast from the sea, who we're going to focus on today, the Antichrist, and the beast from the earth, called the false prophet, who God willing will study about next week, these three make up a repulsive and grotesque parody of the Trinity. The dragon, Satan, is like God the Father. And the beast from the sea is like Jesus Christ, God the Son. And the beast from the earth, the false prophet, is like the Holy Spirit. The dragon, Satan, desires to be worshipped. And he uses the beast from the sea to cause men to worship him. 
The dragon gives his authority to the beast from the sea, a grotesque parody of what we're taught in the Great Commission, where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me by God the Father. Like the Father and the Son, the dragon and the beast share a throne and extend it to the ends of the earth. The beast, the Antichrist, was apparently slain and risen from the dead in a parody of the resurrection. After his resurrection from the dead, the beast will seek to be worshipped as God. The beast, the Antichrist, will have power to do signs and wonders just as Jesus did. Like the Holy Spirit, the beast from the earth, the false prophet, will not speak of himself but will point everyone to the beast from the sea, the Antichrist, and get them to worship him. And so we have this grotesque parody of the Trinity at the end of human history. All right, so what of the beast's origin? We begin with the dragon in verse 1, standing by the seashore. The dragon stood by the sea of the shore. We have to go back to Revelation 12 to find out who the dragon is. The dragon in verse 9, Revelation 12, 9, we're told directly who the dragon is. The great dragon was hurled down from the heavenly realms. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, he was hurled down. So the dragon is Satan. At the end of that chapter, right before Revelation 13, we're told in verse 17, Revelation 12, 17, the dragon, Satan, was enraged at the woman who we identified generally as the people of God, but more specifically as Israel, which gives birth to the people of God. He's enraged at the people of God, the woman, and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Those are Christians. So the dragon is going to, to pr uh, prosecute a war against Christians. And now we go right into Revelation 13. It is through the beast from the sea that he's going to do this. That's how the persecution is going to uh, occur. The Antichrist, the beast from the sea, is Satan's dark instrument to carry out his hatred and his warfare against Christians. And so he stands on the seashore and calls the beast up out of the sea. Now this should immediately bring our minds, and I've done background work with you in the last sermon that I preached, to Daniel chapter 7. You don't need to turn there, but I would just recommend it. The most important commentary in Revelation 13 is Daniel chapter 7. And in that vision, the prophet Daniel sees this. In my vision at night, Daniel 7, 2, and 3, I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. They come up sequentially, one after the other in Daniel 7. Here in Revelation 13, we have the dragon standing by the shore of the sea. And he looks out over the sea. What does the sea represent? Well, the vast, teeming, seething, tumultuous mass of humanity, I think, waiting for a leader to organize them, and move them in one direction. I think of Isaiah 57 and verse 20. It says, The wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and muck. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Isaiah 57. More to the point, in Revelation 17, verse 15, the angel talking about the great whore of Babylon, we'll talk about Babylon and all that in due time, God willing. But the great whore of Babylon sits on the waters of the sea. And it says in 1715, the waters you saw where the prostitute, Babylon, sits are 
peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. So that gives me the interpretive key. The sea represents the vast, seething, teeming mass of humanity. But beyond that, we have the sense of the abyss. The sea kind of uh, comes across as bottomless. It's deeper than we can fathom, fathomless, the abyss. And out of that region, it says in Revelation 17, 8, the beast, which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. So the, it represents the, the nether reaches, the never, nether regions out of which demonic force comes. That's the sense that we get. So that's the representation of the sea. Now, the beast's nature and authority is taught for us in verses 1 and 2. The beast is described as the consummation of the flow of human history. Look at verse 1 and 2. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. And he had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on his horns and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw represented a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. Now, in Daniel 7, we're told very plainly the beasts represent human empires. We're told plainly that's what they mean. The first in Daniel 7 was a lion with the wings of an eagle, and that represented Babylon. The second was like a bear, Medo-Persia. The third beast that came up out of the sea was like a leopard that had four wings that represented Greece. And the fourth was not identified. It was indescribable, a terrifying beast that trampled everything underfoot that represented Rome. Now, in Daniel 7, these four beasts come out sequentially. And they represent sequential empires that rise and fall, and then the next empire comes and takes its place. Here, these symbols are combined. There's only one beast. There's not a sequence of beasts, just one here at the end. The beast represents, therefore, a a demonic, human, geopolitical realm, a, a world organized together against the Lord and against his people. Now, up until that final phase, no one ruler has dominated all of planet Earth. The seven heads on the beast represent a flow of empires throughout human history, that comes into the final form at the end of the world. 1 John 2.18, many antichrists have come. So already we've had a series of antichrists that have come, but they're not the final antichrist. Now the three listed animals of Daniel's vision are combined. It's a conglomerate beast, the worst of them all. It is like a leopard which represents speed and agility and stealth and cleverness. The feet like a bear represents the beast's ability to trample its enemies with massive power. And the mouth of the lion represents the beast's roar and its its ability to, to shred or rip apart its adversaries with ferocious teeth. So all of this represents the worst of all of the empires that have ever been in human history together in one. It's not a sequence here, it's just one at the end. The beast and the man are also combined. The individual represents the empire. So from that point on, the beast is just spoken of as an individual, a person. Now obviously a single man, no matter how charismatic, no matter what a great speaker or how physically powerful or, or leader-like, cannot dominate a a planet with seven, eight, nine billion people. It's impossible. 
So he's going to have minions under him. He's going to have military power. He's going to have lackeys that are going to carry out his orders. That's the, the beast originally, the empire. But in the end, he becomes the beast. He dominates it and moves it and makes it do whatever he wants. So the individual, the head of this horrifying empire, becomes the focus of that. We actually are very familiar with this way of speaking. For example, during World War II, President Roosevelt spoke specifically of stopping Hitler after a German U-boat fired a torpedo at the USS Kearney. This was two months before the U.S. entered the war after the Pearl Harbor attack. And in a radio address, October 27, 1941, President Roosevelt said this, The forward march of Hitler and of Hitlerism can be stopped and it will be stopped. Hitler's torpedo was directed at every American, whether he lived on our seacoast or in the innermost part of the nation, far from the seas, far from the guns and tanks of the marching hordes of would-be conquerors of the world. He boils it all down to one individual. And you could be a wheat farmer in Kansas. Hitler shot a torpedo at you. That's the way they address it. We, we're well familiar with this. This single leader, this one man, represents the beast, the whole empire, and becomes the beast to some degree. So that in verses 4 and 8, it says, all those who live on the earth will worship him. And the Greek is very clear. There's an individual they're focusing on, worship of an individual. Verse 1 speaks of the authority and the blasphemy of the beast. He had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns, and then each had a blasphemous name. All these are symbols of the power and authority that this empire will have in the end. The horns represent kingly power and also military power. So also do the crowns. But the whole system is blasphemous. It's an open challenge to God and to his Christ, to the true king blasphemous. Antichrist will be then a king of kings. The ten horns represent kings and their diadems represent kingly power. So the final world empire will be made up of lesser kings who have been in some sense subdued and cowed by the Antichrist and will submit to him and lend their power to him. We'll see this later, God willing, in Revelation 17, 12 and 13 where it says, the ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. So he is a king of kings. We could well imagine that in the aftermath of the trumpet judgments, if we, if we take this sequentially, the events of Revelation 8 and 9 will destabilize the entire world. Just take one of them. Take the poisoning of one-third of all the drinkable water on earth. Do you not see what result that would have on the mass migrations of people desperate to get drinking water? They won't care about crossing national boundaries. They won't care about anything except getting water to drink. But there are other things, horrors going on at that time. You can see world leaders coming together in a United Nations sort of sense to try to figure out what to do. And at that point, the beast's initial skills start to emerge. He would be one of many leaders, but by his diplomatic skill, 
he will maneuver around the others and topple the others, perhaps by assassination or Machiavellian intrigue. These things are clearly taught in the book of Daniel. So just listen to Daniel 8, 23 and 24. It speaks of a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. And then Daniel 11, 21, 23, 32, all say the same thing about the Antichrist. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure and will seize it, listen to this, through intrigue. Daniel eleven twenty three. after coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully and with only a few people will rise to power. So he's good at making deals and then breaking them. We saw this with Hitler and Stalin, the deal over Poland, and then broken. The dark covenants that are broken when it serves the individual best. And then Daniel eleven thirty two. with flattery he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Flattery, intrigue, broken covenants, that's how he starts. And he gets power, but it's not his own power. And pretty soon, he's in charge of everything. Verse 2, the dragon gives the beast supernatural power. He gave the beast his power and throne and great authority. Satan has been ruling the world in secret, but always through many kings and kingdoms. He divides and conquers. He keeps any one nation from being too powerful. He just, he's a murderer. He just wants to kill people. So he, it's much to his advantage to have a very powerful Hitlerite Germany and a very powerful Red Soviet Union so he can kill lots of Germans and Russians. He doesn't love any human beings. So he's been dividing and conquering. But now at the end of the world, he will empower his masterpiece, consolidating world power into one man. And he will give the whole world to this one man. It's never been done before. The largest contiguous empire in history has been that of Genghis Khan and the Mongols, 1309, encompassing 9 million square miles, or about 16% of the Earth's surface. The largest empire period in history was that of the British Empire in the 19th century. The sun never set on the British Empire, but they had Canada, Australia, whatever. It wasn't contiguous. Big oceans separated their holdings. But they rose to about 24% of the, earth, the surface of the, of the Earth. One quarter. That's the most that Satan has ever given to any empire, whether the Romans or the Greeks or the Assyrians or Babylonians, never more than one quarter. But now at the end, consolidates and gives it to one man. It's interesting, the very thing Jesus refused to do on that mountain of temptation, this man will do. If you will bow down and worship me, it will all be yours. Well, this individual is happy to do that. And he worships, first and foremost, the dragon who gives him the authority. And look at the worldwide extent of his reign, verse 7. This says it all. He was given authority over every tribe, people, nation, and language. It says it. I mean, it's never been done in history, so this has not yet been fulfilled. We don't need to wonder, is so-and-so the Antichrist? Wait and see. If they gain control over the entire earth, then you'll know. If they don't, then they're not. They are an Antichrist, but not the Antichrist. Now, in verse 3, we have the beast's supernatural resurrection. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. This is the greatest satanic deception in history. The beast will be able to perform miraculous signs and wonders. Paul tells us that in 2 Thessalonians 2.9. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan 
displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. He will empower the Antichrist to do signs and wonders. But Paul there in 2 Thessalonians 2 also speaks of a powerful delusion which is effective in getting the whole world to believe a lie. That may well be this resurrection, this fake resurrection. The greatest miracle that he does is his apparent resurrection from a fatal wound. Later next week, God willing, in verse 12, we'll talk about the false prophet, but this is what it says in verse 12. The false prophet made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And again in verse 14, the false prophet ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So, this resurrection will cinch his popularity and his power and usher his reign into a whole new realm of idolatry and blasphemy. Look again at verse 3 and 4. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast who can make war against him? So the whole world is going to be amazed and cowed by this man. After the Antichrist comes to life, the people of the world will realize that resistance to this powerful man is futile. No one will be able to stop him. No one will be able to defeat him, so they will think. Obviously, they don't know Christ and his power. But they think there's never been anyone like this man, and there never has been. This awe, this sense of wonder, will be essential to the Antichrist world dominion. What's the point in fighting him? You're just going to lose. But meanwhile, we like him, actually. We are in favor of him. Look at all the good he's done in our extremity. Look at all the ways he's been able to get us food and clothing and shelter and drinkable water and organize us and get us going again in the right direction. So there's incredible positive inducements and incredible negative inducements toward this individual. And they're going to fear him and they're going to obey him. But that power and fear is not enough for this individual. He wants to be worshipped as God, actually. And this blasphemous worship is the culmination of both Satan's rebellion and man's rebellion. Satan originally wanted to be like the Most High. He wanted to be worshipped. That's what he wanted, to topple God from his throne and take his place and be worshipped. But so did the human race. We joined Satan in that, that evil rebellion. You will be like God, we were told, knowing good from evil. We wanted to be like God. And so idolatry has often taken human form. Idolaters are parodied in Isaiah 44 and verse 13. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. And he roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. And he shapes his idol in the form of a man. Of man in all his glory. Many rulers throughout history have sought to be worshipped as God or gods. Alexander the Great, coins showed him with the horns of Zeus Ammon coming out of his head. A clear sign of deity in their culture. Many Roman emperors openly aspired to worship and to be deified. It began with Caesar Augustus. This was the essence of the imperial cult that was the backdrop of John writing this book. And many... Scholars and commentators focus on that imperial cult. 
All you have to do is burn a pinch of incense to Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord. And just worship him and add Caesar to your pantheon and you are in allegiance to the Roman Empire and you'll be fine. But if not, you'll be prosecuted by the Roman Empire. That is true, but it doesn't go far enough because this whole thing continues on. Inca emperors, their, their subjects thought that they were God. And they would bow down and that was the essence of their ability to hold power over tens of thousands of subjects. I don't know how far it went with Napoleon, but he grabbed the crown from the Pope's hand and crowned himself. I mean, there's pretty strong symbolism there. You don't have any right to crown me, I'll crown myself. Until the end of World War II, the Japanese saw their emperor as a deity. Descended from the gods that had founded their island nation. William Shire, who wrote The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, said during the Nuremberg rallies in, in the dark that the people, the German people, looked on Hitler as if he were the Messiah. There was a, a, wor- a level of worship for that governmental leader that he had never seen before. This has been the tendency of human nature, to either seek worship or to give it to dominant leaders. And the whole world's going to fall into this. The whole world is going to worship the beast. Wait a minute, the whole world almost. Not everyone Look at verse 8. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written, in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. So the Christians, the elect, are going to hold back. They will not worship the beast. And this will cause the beast to actively wage war on Christians, to fight against them, both Jewish and Gentile Christians. More on that in a moment. This will be... The abomination of desolation. As I've already said, I believe he will permit the Jews to rebuild the temple. And at the height of the building of that, he will take the place over. And as 2 Thessalonians 2.4 says, he will set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. This is, I believe, the abomination of desolation. And it's exactly, I think, at that moment that the Jews will realize old covenant worship will never be reestablished. And they will turn at last to Christ, the one they have pierced, and they will look on him with tears and believe in him and become the enemies of the Antichrist, and he will pursue them, and they will have to run for their lives, as we already talked about in Matthew 24. And look at the beast's blasphemies, verse 5 and 6. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words. Now let me say something. While Chase was reading the scripture, I hadn't noticed how strongly his, the fact that everything he has is given to him is clear in these verses. He was given a mouth, see? Uh, He was given authority. He's given a certain amount of time. All of this has been given. No, not by the dragon, but permitted by God. God is ruling over all of this. But look at the blasphemies, verse 5 and 6. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. And he opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name in his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. The mouth of the Antichrist is his most powerful weapon. He uses smooth talk and flatteries. We've already talked about lying and deceptive diplomacy. But here it says he speaks great things. He's a powerful speaker. Grandiose, eloquent proclamations. And people are just melting as they hear him speak. But here it's speaking proud words or blasphemies. And he is able by his speaking ability to unite the world. Everyone, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, 
atheists. At last, all of them find not just political unity, but actually spiritual religious unity in worshiping this one individual. The blasphemy of the little horn of Daniel is a prominent feature. Daniel 7, 8, it says this horn, the Antichrist, had the eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Daniel eleven thirty six. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. So after his resurrection, this man will become insufferable and arrogant. And his mouth will lay claim to heaven. And his mind will be puffed up with blasphemies. Now blasphemy are words spoken against the glory of God. Either the person denigrates God himself... Or he seeks worship as God. That's blasphemy. Probably this wicked man will do both in large doses. Now I want to just stop and say, do you not notice how much of our salvation, the work of God of salvation is meant to humble us, we who are saved? It's a humbling thing to be saved by Christ. It's humbling to know that God chose the elect before they had done anything good or bad. That's a humbling thing. And it's very humbling to be justified by faith in a Savior who died and rose again centuries before you were even born. And his righteous obedience to the law becomes your obedience. Because you don't have sufficient obedience to go to heaven. That's very humbling. And we're told that we were saved by grace through faith so that what? No one may boast. And we're told in Romans 3, where then is boasting? It is excluded. And we're told that God chose some... uh, He chose those that are weak and and not influential and the lowest of the low, so that no one would boast before him. And it's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. And in the end, when we are standing there and we're in our white robes and we're celebrating, we're going to say salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We will be forever worshiping him and there will be no boasting in heaven except in the Lord. He is humbling us by our salvation. And it's a sweet thing to be humbled, to be put in your place as a human being and spend eternity in that place. But this arrogant little horn, this antichrist, his mouth lays claim to heaven and demands worship as God. But the clock is ticking. It's not going to go on forever. Verse 5 says he was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. That same time frame we've studied again and again. The second half of the final seven-year period, 1,260 days, time, times, and half a time, three and a half years. He's on a strict time leash, as is his master, the dragon, who is filled with rage because he knows that his time is short. And who does the beast blaspheme? He, verse 6, he blasphemes God, the creator of the ends of the earth, and he slanders God's name, and he slanders his dwelling place, heaven, and he slanders those who dwell in heaven. But most bitter of all for us, verse 7 through 10, he is given power to conquer the saints. And you need to hear this very, very carefully need to understand it. Jesus said, you're going to be arrested, you're going to be dragged before courts and have to give an account, and they will put you to death. I've told you ahead of time. So we need to know this ahead of time, because the worst of all of that is yet to come. It's been going on for 20 centuries, but the worst is yet to come. Look at verse 7. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them, and he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. When the beast directly attacks the people of God and is successful in slaughtering many of them, it will be the greatest trial of faith the survivors will have ever had. 
Where is God? Why has he abandoned us? Take your hand from the fold of your garment and extend it and save us. We're being slaughtered by the tens of thousands. Throughout the history of the church, the government has persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ and shed their blood. From the Roman era on, it's been going on for 20 centuries. A trail of blood. But it's going to greatly escalate, exponentially uh, extend and, and, and increase at the end of the world. And it's directly predicted by Daniel. Daniel 7.21. As I watched, this horn was, listen to this, waging war against the saints and defeating them. And then Daniel 7.25. He will speak against the Most High and oppress the saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. So the beast has worldwide power and worldwide worship. Every nation on the face of the earth will be under his dominion. Because of his wonder-working power, he'll be worshipped openly as God by everyone but the saints. And this is not going to satisfy him. He's going to pursue them and wage war against them. As we already saw in Revelation 11, beginning with the two witnesses, who are able to overcome any who oppose them because fire comes out of their mouths and devours their enemies, but not the beast. They can't overcome him. He overcomes them and kills them. Three and a half days later, they rise from the dead and ascend to heaven, praise God. But he is incredibly powerful. This is the fleeing, the running for their lives that Jesus spoke of, where you don't even have time to go down and get your cloak. You don't have time to do anything. If you're pregnant or a nursing mother at that time, it's going to be very, very hard to run for your life. That's how hard it will be to escape. And the most terrifying place, that's just Judea. Not all over the world are people running. There's nowhere to run to because there's nowhere to hide. I mean, think about the Gestapo and the hiding place. You ever see that? And, and they're hiding Jews. And they're able to deceive the human police that come. How do you deceive the devil and his, and his demons? He knows everything. He knows where all the hiding places are. And the Lord has given the saints over to his hands. And so many of them are captured. They're not able to hide. And they're going to be slaughtered. Jesus said if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. And they will refuse to worship him. Look again at verse 8. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Now, there are different translations of that phrase. Something happened before the creation of the world. Either their names were written in the lamb's book of life or the lamb was slain from the creation of the world. Different translations go different ways. It doesn't matter. In some sense, no matter where you put that phrase, Jesus was thinking of himself as slain from the beginning of human history. He knew all the animal sacrifices were pointed to him before he came incarnate in the Virgin Mary. He knew that all pointed to his death. And God chose us from the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, and we will not be deceived. And, and this kind of teaching is why. It's because it's so detailed. You're told ahead of time what's going to happen. You'll know. And you will not be deceived because you have been forewarned. But the warfare is going to be fierce. Look at verse 9 and 10. He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part, on the part of the saints. This refers to the various ways that the saints are going to be killed. Ironically, these words usually spoke of, of wicked Israel as when the Babylonians or the Assyrians came in, you're going to die by the sword, famine, and plague. 
But this time it's applied to the righteous and to the holy people. And there's ordained outcomes of ways of dying for the martyrs. The millions of martyrs that God has willed. And he's orchestrated how each of them is going to die. And precious in the sight of the Lord will be their martyrdom. But if you are ordained to die by the sword, by the sword you will die. If you're going to die another way, that's how it's going to be. And this call is for patient endurance. Stand firm. He who stands firm to the end will be saved, Jesus said. Patient endurance right to the end. All right, what applications can we take from this chapter? First, let's just see the limitations, the scope, and role of government. Don't worship any government leader. Don't put your ultimate hopes in a political party or an election. Don't have overweening hopes for this individual or that one. They are all of them flawed humans. Even if they're believers, brothers or sisters in Christ, they're still limited because there are many non-Christians in the government to restrain them. But worldwide, the end will not be a utopian human governmental system. That is not coming. Let's limit our esteem for government without failing to submit to non-immoral commands they may give us. But beyond that, let's worship the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's realize there is a coming king who will be perfectly righteous. And he will destroy all of his enemies. So this is the time to not be an enemy of Jesus. Flee to Christ now. If you came in here today as an unbeliever in Christ, I believe God brought you here to hear the gospel. And the gospel is simple, that God, the creator of the ends of the earth, sent his son, just mentioned a moment ago, born of the Virgin Mary, lived a sinless life, died on the cross in the place of sinners, but rose again, actually rose from the dead on the third day. Not a sham resurrection. But the tomb was really genuinely empty. Death has been defeated. And if you believe in Jesus, as we heard with the two testimonies in baptism, you believe in Jesus, all of your sins, past, present, and future, will be forgiven. Flee to Christ. But someday, Christ is going to come back, and he's going to establish a kingdom that will last forever. And, you know, in about six, seven weeks, we're going to celebrate it. I love this, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. It says, for to us, a son is born, to us, a child is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So look forward to that, the coming king. And realize one of the purposes of this chapter is show the greatness of Christ. This beast is horrifying, terrifying, powerful. Jesus is going to destroy him with the breath of his mouth and the splendor of his coming. Like this. It's not a stressor for him. It won't be a hard day for him when he comes with the armies of heaven. It will be a quick battle. That's what happens when creature faces creator. And with his omnipotent arm, he will win the victory with no stress at all. With the breath of his mouth. As Luther put, Martin Luther, in A Mighty Fortress of Our God, one little word will fell him. Be dead. Be done. It's over. That's the power of Christ. A couple more things. Understand Satan's current 
puppet role as puppet master around the world. It's going on right now. Many antichrists are ruling right now. It's happening right now. Study and understand the doctrine of the future. I've given you a lot of details over these weeks. Study them. Pass them on to your children. It may not happen in your lifetime, but it might happen in theirs. Pass on these warnings to your children. Grow and develop in your prayer life. Take these things to God in prayer. And part of your prayer life should be a concern for the persecuted church. I told you earlier, our brothers and sisters in a large, populous East Asian nation are experiencing the greatest persecution they've experienced in decades. And it's going to get worse. It says in 1 Corinthians 12, 26 of the body of Christ, when one part suffers, the whole body suffers with it. When one part is honored, the whole body is honored with it. Let's join our suffering brothers and sisters by praying for them and seeking as best we can to alleviate their suffering. Close with me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the time we've had. It's been a rich day, many features today. We have enjoyed worship. We've enjoyed the baptism. We've enjoyed the covenant uh, ceremony and the chance to see the faces of brothers and sisters who are joining us with covenant membership. And then to hear the word preached. And so, Lord, we pray that we would drink in these blessings and realize that you have loved us with an everlasting love. And you have taught us these things so that we may be ready to live fruitfully, to live holy lives in this present evil age, and to share the gospel, to take these things and warn people of the coming judgment and warn them to flee to Christ and to live lives filled with hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.